Good afternoon, distinguished guests and colleagues. My name is Dorothy Meal. I'm the Vice Principal of the University and Head of the College of Humanities and Social Science. And it's my great pleasure to extend a very warm welcome to you, to this historic hall, to the university, and to this lecture, which is part of our prestigious Enlightenment series. The university, the city, and indeed Scotland as a whole, are closely associated with the hugely influential work of the great scholars of the Enlightenment and the intellectual, economic, and cultural transformations that they brought about. Throughout this year, we're celebrating the 300th anniversary of the birth of one of the foremost of these scholars, David Hume, whose work is being discussed during the rest of the Hume Society's international conference being held this week here in Edinburgh. I'd particularly like to welcome the delegates of the conference and to thank the organising committee for all their work in planning the conference. I'd also like to thank Susan Manning and her colleagues at the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities for their planning and support for this evening's lecture and all the other events in the Hume Anniversary Series this year, and to the RSA Scotland for their contribution in sponsoring and supporting tonight's lecture. The lecture series as a whole gives us an opportunity to listen to and then engage in discussion with major world figures in politics, science, philosophy and economics as they examine aspects of the Enlightenment's legacy in the context of the times in which we live today. There is certainly no doubt that our speaker this evening is one such world-leading figure. Indeed, last year, Time magazine listed him as one of the world's 100 most influential people. Professor Sen is currently the Thomas W. Lamont University Professor and Professor of Economics and Philosophy at Harvard University. He's held major posts at several of the world's top universities and is a distinguished fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, and a fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge, where he previously served as master. Professor Sen has received innumerable honours. Of particular note, of course, is his Nobel Prize for Economic Sciences in 1998. And in 1999, the highest civilian award in India, the Bharat Ratna. Alongside his many other awards and honorary degrees, he received an honorary Doctor of Science from Edinburgh University in 1995. Professor Sen is certainly one of our most extraordinary intellectuals of this time. His work, for all its proven technical rigour, speaks not only to fellow economists, but also far beyond the academy to politicians and publics alike. For example, his work on the causes of famine changed public perceptions by showing why thousands might starve even without food shortages, and his analyses of gender inequality and poverty have been enormously influential worldwide. Arguing that simple measures of GNP were not enough to assess the standard of living, he helped to create the United Nations Human Development Index, which has become the most authoritative international source of welfare comparisons between countries. One of Professor Sen's collaborators, the philosopher Martha Nussbaum, drew an implied comparison with another key Enlightenment figure, Adam Smith, when she suggested that his contribution to economics is unique. Quote, 
because he isn't the only recent or living economist who takes philosophy seriously and whose thinking about the foundations of economics is informed by his own high-level work in philosophy. And so, it's clearly highly appropriate in this Enlightenment lecture and as part of the 300th anniversary of the birth of Scotland's greatest philosopher that I now ask you to welcome Professor Sen to present his lecture entitled David Hume and the Demands of Ethics. really a wonderful opportunity for me to be here today. Edinburgh is one of my favorite cities, and the university is one of my favorites, and also the occasion, David Hume and the celebration of enlightenment are very pleasing things. I would like to thank Professor Miguel for her over-generous, but I won't complain about that. Very kind remarks. Thank you very much, and thank you all for coming. David Hume made so many part-breaking contribution to, contributions to the world of ideas and understanding that any celebratory lecture must be lamentably incomplete in saying far less than what can be said in his appreciation. From epistemology to practical reason, from aesthetics to religion, from political economy to philosophy, from social and cultural studies to historiography, the intellectual world was transformed by the enlightening power of Hume's mind. When, lying in his deathbed, David Hume wrote a moving letter of goodbye to Madame Boufflaire, with whom he was almost certainly in love, on hearing the news of the death of her husband, Court de Boufflaire, Hume could not but have looked nostalgically also at the world of learning and thinking to which, too, he was saying goodbye, and with which he was certainly in love as well. I see that approach gradually without any anxiety or regret, wrote Hume to the Confess, adding, I salute you with great affection and regard for the last time. Hume could not have written as easily about the affection and regard that he had for human understanding that had moved him throughout his life to take up one intellectual challenge after another. While Hume himself was, we understand, anxiety-free, the world of learning had much reason for distress as one of the most creative minds of all time approached its end in 1776. I'm no Hume expert, and in my involvement with Hume's analysis, I have been far less occupied with the origin and antecedents of his analysis, and much more with the implications and possible extensions of Hume's ideas. I find it very engaging to ask how we can go forward from Hume and with Hume, trying to apply and extend his ideas. In this lecture, I want to pursue three of David Hume's penetrating observations and their implications. Even though nearly every observation of Hume has received extensive comment commentary from later writers, 
there are, I believe, still some fruitful ground to further explore in pursuing these insightful remarks. Two of the three observations of Hume I'm choosing to discuss are very well-known and much discussed. They relate respectively to Hume's apparent skepticism of the role of reason as opposed to inst instinct and emotions, and his belief in the compatibility of freedom and predictability. However, I, not, I start not with them, but with another Humean observation, which has received apparently little attention, comparatively little attention, I think not apparently, comparatively really, it really has received little attention, despite the fact that it reflected a pioneering understanding of the large ethical implications of <clears throat> the new economic globalization that was taking place in the world in which Hume was born 300 years ago. It was an exciting economic world that was emerging right in front of Hume, and also, of course, Adam Smith, not far from here, and Turgot and Condorcet and Immanuel Kant, and other giants of the European Enlightenment. To this changing world, all of them, and many others, attempted to respond in different ways. David Hume, in particular, pointed to the need for a new ethics for a newly interconnecting world. Hume's analysis of the moral and political consequences of the rapid expansion of human relations across the globe related to their ethical implications um, related to the ethical implications of growing knowledge about distant people, combined with changing concerns of human beings as they came to know more about the lives of people who were largely unknown to them earlier. The nature of many of today's moral and political con concerns and also dilemmas about our, border, our borderless responsibilities was well anticipated by Hume. And what is even more important, he accommodated this predictable evolution of thought within a framework of informational dependence of ethics. Indeed, the ethical departure that Hume proposed may help to explain, for example, the emergence, right now, of the so-called anti-globalization movement as an expression oddly enough, given its name, of a global ethics, a sense of cross-border grievance about the con conditions of the most deprived people in the world, the wretched of the earth, brings together in this often very disorderly movement citizens from rich and poor countries to gather in protest, sometimes even in violent protest, in one city after another, in Seattle and Washington, in London, Prague, and Genoa, converging from right across the world. <clears throat> I shall have more to say presently on the lines of David Hume's analysis and their implications for our further globalizing world today. But before that, I must talk a little <clears throat> about the <clears throat> two other Humean observations to which I referred earlier. While those observations have been much discussed in the literature already, they can bear, as I have already said, some supplementary examination and further pursuit. 
they also have direct relevance to Hume's prediction of, as well as demand for, the growing reach of ethical responsibilities in a changing world. So the next, the second Humean observation, in fact, a series of observations that I take up confess the priority that Hume gave, or supposed to have given, to instinct and passion over reason and reasoning. There are at least two different ways in which this undermining seems to take place. First, Hume made several remarks on the behavioral importance of instincts rather than any, I quote, relations or comparisons of ideas as are the proper objects of our intellectual faculties, unquote. He went on to explain that even though, I quote again, the distinct, sorry, the instinct be different, yet still it is an instinct which teaches a man to avoid a fire, unquote, in much the way animal behavior is determined. Second, our motives determine our, since our motives determine our actions, the idea of reasoned ethics may be illusory. Going further, Hume has been interpreted, with some plausibility, to have believed, and I quote Thomas Nagel here, from his book, The Last Word, I quote, describing Hume, that because a passion immune to rational assessment must underlie every motive, there can be no such thing as specifically practical reason, nor specifically moral reason either, unquote. I believe there is something to discuss here. To use up a convenient phrase from the title of one of the most famous presentations of Frank Ramsey to his fellow apostles almost a century ago. There is scope for argument on how best to understand the implications of what Hume said on these subjects. The importance of instincts in our choices, as seen by Hume, does not, I would argue, undermine the role of a class of reasoning, a class of reasoning that Hume called experimental reasoning. And it is important to examine what the bearing of Hume's focus on instincts is on the explanation and predictability of actions. The issue here, I would argue, is the nature and reach of reasoning rather than a simple denial of the need for considering reasons of choice in explaining behavior. Similarly, when it comes to reasoned ethics, Hume would seem to be arguing against seeing reasoned ethics as a freestanding discipline detached from our motives and emotions. And this does not really undermine the role of reasoning, um, uh, the, the role that reasoning clearly has in Hume's explication of the demands of ethics. Indeed, Hume's insisted that any reasoning, including practical reason, must have some necessary basis, both in our feelings and in the knowledge that we actually have seems to me to be quite central to understanding the nature of practical reason and moral reasoning. Hume made extensive remarks about the crucial role of reasoning on many subjects, including our ethics and the determination of our responsibilities. 
He also expressed the view that, I quote from him, reason and sentiment conquer in almost all moral determinations and conclusions, unquote. This does not, to be sure, establish any kind of empire of reasoning, but it does warn us against seeing sentiment and reason in oppositional terms, in general and in Hume's thought, placing them in some kind of a collision course with each other. More positively, it suggests the need to see reasoning and feeling as deeply interrelated activities. If, as Nagel points out, there is no such subject as, I quote, specifically practical reason or specifically moral reason in the interpretation of Hume's view, this can be because of the understanding that Hume, I believe, had and wanted to advance that ethics cannot but draw on epistemology, also on what our instincts convey. Ethics, in this view, may be a distinct discipline, given its subject matter, but not, it is not a detached field of inquiry, shorn of all epistemic and sentimental connections. Even though I have to pursue further, later on in this lecture, as I promised to do, the connections between reasoning and instinct, I note here that there is an integrating link between different human themes I'm examining today. And that link is reflected in the understanding that the analysis of justice and injustice in the world must depend on our knowledge of other people and also on the way that knowledge influences, I would add reasonably influences, our instincts and sentiments. The third Humean theme concerns Hume's observation on the compatibility of freedom and necessity. The far-reaching clarifications that Hume presented here have an enormous relevance to some contemporary debates on predictability and fatalism, and in particular help us to understand the freedom of decision-making in a world that may quite possibly be causally determinate. The topic had great bearing also on the importance of ethical reasoning, even when the results of those deliberations can be predicted with con considerable certainty. I must declare an interest here. The compatibility of the power of the reflected will in a predictable universe was the su subject matter of my first attempt as a graduate student to write in philosophy in the late 1950s. In a debate with Azar Berlin, Berlin took a largely non-compatibilist view of determinism and freedom, while as a young and brash research student, I tried to present the compatibilist position to Berlin, to which I must mention he gave um, uh, with exceptional and characteristic generosity, sympathetic consideration. While my argument did not have anything of the elegance of Hume's superb reasoning on this subject, which, alas, I had not yet read when I was debating with Berlin, I felt both thrilled and impassioned when I eventually realized that I was, in, in fact, unknowingly and imperfectly following Hume's footsteps. 
There was a sense of excitement that as a young and untrained thinker, I had strained into, strayed into one of the central queries in philosophy to which the great David Hume, no less, had given such careful attention. This query is, in fact, quite important for understanding Hume's analysis of the demands of ethics in a globalizing world as well, which came side by side with his prediction of an expanding sense of justice. I come back now to the first Humean theme that I'm discussing here, the demands of ethics in a world of enhanced globalization. How eventful was the expanding global contact in Hume's 18th century world? I believe it was very eventful, influencing the very character of the European Enlightenment. But it is also important to note that extensive global contact was not a new phenomenon in the world, though Europe was linking together in it in a very special way. I've argued elsewhere, particularly in my book, Identity and Violence, The Illusion of Destiny, that the world of ideas and practice had had a long global history. Indeed, I've argued that our global civilization is a world heritage, not just a collection of disparate local cultures. For example, when a modern mathematician in Europe and America invokes an algorithm to solve a difficult computational problem, she may not be aware that she is helping to commemorate the name of the Arab mathematician Al-Khwarizmi, who flourished in the first half of the 19th century and from whose name the word algorithm is derived. The term algebra is derived from his famous Arabic book, Al-Jabr wal-Muqabila. There is a chain of intellectual relations that link Western mathematics and science to a group of distinctly non-Western practitioners, of whom Muhammad ibn Musa al-Khwarizmi was one. In turn, al-Khwarizmi and other Iran Arab and Iranian mathematicians were deeply interested in the pioneering work of Indian mathematicians of the first millennia, like the golden age of Indian mathematics, such as Aryabhat and Brahmagupta, work that were repeatedly translated by them from Sanskrit to Arabic. There were a large group of contributors from different non-Western societies, Chinese, Arabic, Iranian, Indian, and others, whose works on science, mathematics, and engineering influenced European Renaissance and later the Age of Enlightenment and even the Industrial Revolution. The West must, must get full credit for the remarkable achievements that occurred in Europe and Europeanized America with the European Enlightenment. But to think of this achievement as an immaculate Western conception would be an imaginative fantasy. Not only is the progress of global science and technology not an exclusively West-led phenomenon, there were major global developments in the world to which the West was not even, in which the West was not even involved. As an illustration, considered an important event in world history, 
1868, the printing of the first book in the world. It was a marvelously globalized event. The technology of printing was, of course, the achievement of the Chinese, who were in close connection with, and indeed in strong competition, competition with Korean as well as the Japanese Buddhist engineers who produced their first printed book around the same time. The content of the first printing had further global connections. The book that was printed was a Chinese translation of an Indian Sanskrit treatise done by a scholar, Kumar Jiva, whose ancestry was part Turkish and part Indian. The book, Vajrachedika Prajna Parameter Sutra, which I did study as a in Sanskrit, not in Chinese translation, I should explain, as a child, sometimes referred to as the Diamond Sutra, is an old treatise in Buddhism. And it was translated into Chinese from Sanskrit in early 5th century by Kumarajiva in the first decade of that century, who migrated to China and became the director of the first institute of foreign languages that existed in the world in Xi'an, in China. The translated book was printed four centuries later in 868 AD. It had been meanwhile translated six other times from Sanskrit to Chinese, but it was Kumarajiva's translation that was used for the 868 um, uh, first printed book with a de dedication, which I want to remind people to remember, especially my media colleague, since that is receiving a certain amount of attention at the moment, a dedication, and that's the biggest thing in the book, which said, uh, reverently printed, uh, sorry, respectfully printed, in reverent memory of my parents, and for universal free distribution in the world. By the time David Hume was born, it was the West, Europe in particular, that was getting to establish its dominance in economic, political, and military power in the globe. Even though the intellectual progress in Western Europe in the preceding centuries drew heavily on the maths and science and engineering in the rest of the world, from China to Greece, in David Hume's time, the leadership in global enlightenment had shifted firmly to the countries in West Europe, such as Britain, France, Germany, and Netherlands. David Hume did not share the growing belief in the detached specialness of the West, which was already beginning to serve as a kind of intellectual backdrop to Western imperialism, of which truly dizzying use would be made in the early 19th century by imperialist theorists such as James Mill and Thomas Babington Macaulay. In Hume's analysis of the explanation for different national characters of different nations, he expressed skepticism of proposals of innate superiority of one notion over another. And he also dismissed, with considerable care and reasoning, the idea that the specialness of the air and climate of some regions, particularly West Europe over others, tended to give the favored parts of humanity some kind of special talents and merits. He looked for explanation in the working of society and morals related to the particular circumstances in which the people were placed. 
he remarked, I quote from Hume, if you run over the globe and revolve the annals of history, we shall discover everywhere signs of sympathy or contagions of manner. None of the influence of air and climate. He went on to comment, I quote from Hume again, we may observe that where a very extensive government had been established for many centuries, it spreads the national character over a whole empire and communicate to every part a similarity of manners. Thus the Chinese have the greatest uniformity of character imaginable, though the air and climate in different parts of those vast domains admit of very considerable variations, unquote. It must be admitted that David Hume was far less firm than Adam Smith was, and there is a real contrast here, in adequately appreciating the equal standing of African people in the global world. And I think that is indeed a rather black spot in Hume's otherwise distinguished moral record. And some of Hume's specific remarks on this subject indicates a failure to appreciate his own analysis of circumstantial determination of observed human characteristics, to which, oddly enough, Adam Smith was adhered much more clearly, particularly in, in talking about Africans and, and contrasting them in very favorable terms with Europeans, which I quote, by the way, I shouldn't be selling my book, but the, well, it's not my book, Adam Smith's first Book, the theory of moral sentiments, which I was privileged to, to write in um, an anniversary uh, edition, uh, 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 introduction for anniversary education uh, edition uh, in uh, 2009, 250 years, um, um, published by Penguin. Um, I discussed these issues quite clearly. Uh, but despite that failure, when it came to a general theory, Hume, too, presumed no real asymmetry based on race or climate in, in his analysis of global relations and cross-border trade, and made no exceptions at all for any part of the world. Hume was an early critic of imperial conquest, and his arguments were enormous, uh, eloquently presented in his, famous, in his most famous work, The Political Discourses, published in 1752. He continued to develop the downside of imperial con conquest in the works to follow. Hume discussed the destructive impact of imperial context, conquest on the conquerors as well as the conquered. The huge gains of global trade and commerce were being sacrificed, Hume argued, at the altar of imperial power, harming all. In the annals of imperial history, the reach of the hypothesis aptly named by another friend of mine, uh, alas, deceased, Jack Gallagher, called the imperialism of free trade, has received, understandably, because it is a very interesting thesis, such extensive attention, and it indeed does have considerable explanatory power, that it is easy to overlook that there was another side of the advocacy of free trade that was firmly opposed to imperial conquest. The focus there was on the all-round benefits of freely arrived economic relations without the use of force and compulsion 
that go with imperialism and without the waste of resources that wars and conquests inevitably involve. To be sure, Hume's opposition to imperialism was not based exclusively on the importance of free trade, but also on the destructive effects on other political and social features. He firmly believed in particular that extensive conquest tended to produce, as he put it in political discourses, I quote, the ruin of every free government, unquote. However, the huge importance of trade among nations was a central issue in Hume's thinking. There was something in Hume's writing that can be seen as a more philosophically argued antecedent of one of the principal themes to be pursued later on by the Manchester liberals, such as Richard Cobden, about a century after Hume. Cobden talked about his hope and commitment, I quote from Cobden, to change the face of the world so as to introduce a system of government entirely distinct from that which now prevails, where the desire and the motive for large and mighty empires and gigantic armies and great navies will die away when man becomes one family and freely exchanges the fruit of his labor with his brother man, unquote. In many ways, Hume went further than Cobden, not only in linking his anti-imperial stand to a broad philosophical position, but also by taking that stand to its logical implications. These implications included Hume's political desire for the end of empires, not in some imagined time, as in the case of Cobden, but in real time, which made Hume remark, I quote from Hume, oh, how I long to see America and the East Indies revolted totally and finally, unquote. David Hume was certainly, I quote, the first great theorist of long-distance commerce, as Emma Rothschild has described him, and his, in his appreciation of trade, Hume saw something more than mere economic benefits to all parties, anticipating a comprehensiveness of assessment that would be, as Rothschild has argued, a central engagement for the Marquis de Condorcet. Trade gets people together and allows people to learn from each other and to use their reasoning better. The indissolvable chain, quote-unquote, that Hume argued linked together, I quote again, industry, knowledge, and humanity was fed by global intercourse. I quote again, the minds of men being once roused from their lethargy and put into fermentation turned themselves on all sides and the very habit of conversing together could not but lead to an increase of humanity, unquote. A part of that enhancement to humanity includes our increased ability to think of justice and injustice in the world as we come to know more and more about each other. The understanding that the contents of theories of justice depends inescapably on the range and limits of public reasoning has, I have to confess, informed my own attempt at exploring the idea of justice, for example, in my last book, The Idea of Justice, drawing on the works of Enlightenment thinkers, such as Adam Smith, the Marquis de Condorcet, Immanuel Kant, Mary Wollstonecraft, 
perhaps the most underestimated thinker of 18th century, and also David Hume. Hume in particular was, I believe, the pioneering analyst of why and how the growing commercial and economic relations tended to expand the reach of public reasoning. Hume put the issue in this way in his essay called Of Justice, written in 1750, which would be included in his um, en an inquiry concerning the principles of morals. I quote from Hume. Again, suppose that several distinct societies maintain a kind of intercourse for mutual convenience and advantage. The boundaries of justice still grow larger in proportion to the largeness of men's views and the force of their mutual connections. History, experience, reason sufficiently instruct us in this natural progress of human sentiments and the gradual enlargement of our regards to justice in proportion as we become acquainted with the extensive utility of that virtue. There are two levels of generality at which this remark could, can be understood and its implications can be explored. One, the more general, is the importance of growing knowledge and enlarged information in formulating and using the idea of justice and in the making and execution of public policies and political programs. While the idea of justice is not an alien notion to us, its reach and cogency, indeed even its coherence, are entirely dependent on the availability and use of knowledge. Epistemology in this sense is central to social ethics and the general feature of practical reason and this general feature of practical reason relates directly to Hume's insistence that we cannot treat ethics and practical reasoning as freestanding fields dissociated from our knowledge of facts and our immediate instincts. Second, at the level of greater particularity, Hume was specially, specifically talking here about the impact of our knowledge of others on our sense of justice and on the demands of justice that we have to accommodate. If our knowledge of each other, as well as the understanding of our interdependencies, grows with our expanding con contact in the globalizing world, then it cannot leave the demands of our, our political and moral concerns unaffected. It's not so much that people about whom we come to know a lot more thereby become more worthy of our ethical attention. That's not the issue. But that greater knowledge allows the possibility of pondering over their lives and their problems in a way that we could not have done without our increased familiarity in the way that epistemology constrains ethics. If we know nothing, almost nothing, about a group of people it's hard to talk about their needs and freedoms. Public reasoning can include known people in a way that it cannot easily accommodate unknown people. How does all this, these Humean thoughts, relate to Hume's supposed emphasis on instincts rather than reasoning? I said rather than reasoning, and it is the rather than bit that would be hard to explicate. It seems clear to me that Hume was much, has much use for reason whenever it could be sensibly deployed. The totality of his 
works richly illustrate the reason-dependent approach. Couldn't help um, recollecting rather a personal memory of mine, a very sad memory when 18, uh, 1985, my late wife, Eva Colony, died from cancer, very young age, when nothing seemed to console. My um, friend, Eric Farfit, sent me some writings of Hume that he thought I should look at. And I have to say, the only thing, uh, not adequately, but only thing that made me have some strength was Hume's writings. So I'm deeply grateful, of course, to David Hume personally in that respect, too, and Derek Parfit, too, for the force of his reasoning. It isn't his feelings that he was conveying to me. It's some reasoning about how to think about the death of someone you loved. The importance of reasoning has to be distinguished, however, from four other issues, and that's where the problem lies in what I believe is an interpretational muddle. First, if it becomes clear, as Hume thought it should be, that experimental reasoning, I quote, that experimental reasoning which we possess in common with beasts, on which the whole conduct of life depends in nothing but a species of instinct or mechanical power, is that to be taken to be some kind of a denial of reasoning? The instinct that makes a person reluctant to put his hand, his or her hand into the fire is both an instinct, it certainly is that, and an example of experimental reasoning, as Hume claims it is. The instinct to keep our hand out of fire is not unrelated to our seeing what happens if a hand happens to go into fire. We don't do that experiment voluntarily, but we keep an eye on that. And an example of experimental reasoning as was discussed by Hume. The instinct to keep our hand out of fire is not unrelated to us seeing what happens. And the immediacy of the fact that this ends up by being an instinct which guides us in our life, uh, as many of our experimental reasoning results do, involves no denial of the understanding which Hume was presenting that this is the form that experimental reasoning can take. The net effect of this dual role is to extend the reach of reasoning, indeed even to animals. The discussion cited here comes in an essay that Hume called Off the Reason of Animals. Rather than to deny that this type of decision could be compatible with any kind of reasoning, since it is in an immediate sense just an instinct. I leave the worshippers of explicit causal reasoning deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning elaborately concerned, wanting to make use of our intellectual faculties in every decision. I leave them to ponder over this problem. I would have like to make clear that I would not like to have this person as a doubles partner in tennis, if only because it would be somewhat exasperating to see him or her calculating the velocity and deceleration of the ball and the optimal place where it ought to be dispatched, given the placement of the players against it over an infinite member set of locational and other causally relevant parameters. Second, it is, is it embarrassing for the use of reasoning that its reach is limited and that we may not, as Hume pointed out, be able, I quote from Hume, ever to satisfy ourselves concerning any determination which may form 
with regard to the origin of worlds, the situation of nature from and to eternity. Unquote. I've discussed elsewhere, in my, particularly in my book, Rationality and Freedom, the harm that has been done to decision theory and the theory of rational choice in many different ways by the presumption that if a reasoning were to be accepted, it must be able to resolve every decisional problem. Indeed, incompleteness, even what I have called assertive incompleteness, is a part of human reasoning, which I have tried to investigate. But this large subject clearly has human antecedents. The usefulness of reasoning is not dependent on it being able to solve every problem at hand. And that understanding, which is still inadequately appreciated in decisional analysis and rational choice theory, was championed already by Hume more than a quarter of a million, a quarter of a millennium ago. Third, is it against the role of reasoning to recognize that the appropriateness of alternative decisions must take note of but not only of, how the alternative outcomes would make us feel today or make us feel in the future. They are part of the relevant, indeed essential considerations. Why should it be derogatory to the role of reason to acknowledge that the contingent circumstances on which reasoning depends, mathematicians call it parametrically depends, would vary from one situation to another? as with our efforts to understand the situation. Finally, reasoning may have to accommodate the understanding that when we predict what would happen in a society, we have to take note of the motives and instincts of the people involved. If our reasoning suggests, as Hume thought it would, that given the circumstances, I quote from Hume, the same motives produce the same actions, then motives and instincts are part of the discipline of reason prediction. There can hardly be any contradiction in admitting instincts and motives among the parameters relevant for prediction, even if it may have the appearance, which I believe is entirely false, of giving reasoning a subsidiary role. These points together amount to a delineation of the nature, really amounts to a delineation of the nature and use of reasoning rather than a denial of the role of reason. They indicate the need to understand that, one, reasoning can take many different forms, sometimes what is more immediately described as just an instinct, as is the case with what Hume called experimental reasoning. Two, reasoning cannot resolve every problem that we face, and its usefulness does not depend on some kind of an assumed omnipotence, Three, reasoning relates to its subject matter, which includes inter alia, our understanding of the situation involved and the psychology and instinctive emotions that the alternative may generate. And four, motives and instincts, instincts are part of the discipline of reason prediction. Human arguments give reasoning a very important role, but does not give it an independent status, nor an empire beyond its domain. If this looks like leaving Napoleon merely in charge of France, but not of Moscow, 
then that may be no bad thing. Finally, what it should be asked is the bearing of all this on Hume's analysis of the need for cha changing ethics in a rapidly globalizing world. There is the important understanding that practical reason cannot be independent of what we know and what we feel. And specifically in the present context, that of expanding globalization, must broaden our ethical concerns and cross-border responsibilities. There is an immediate question here concerning the character of human linking of global contact, increasing global contact, with the enlargement of ethics. Is this a prediction that Hume is making? Or is this a, an ethical proposition regarding that he is making that we are morally required to do in a more global world? The answer, I would suggest, is both. The recognition that there is reasonable predictability is not in conflict with demands of ethics relates directly to Hume's compatibilist theory, the compatibility of liberty and necessity, as Hume put it. In that essay, Hume asks, for what is meant by liberty when applied to voluntary action? We cannot surely mean that actions have to be, uh, actions have so little connection with motives, inclination, and circumstances then one does not follow with a certain degree of uniformity from the other. That affords no inference by which we can conclude the existence of the other, unquote. The possibility of anticipating with reasonable certainty how a person would exercise his power of acting or not acting according to the, the determination of the will, to quote Hume, does not indicate the absence of such a power, but only an understanding of how that power is most likely to be used. So the existence of predictability with reasonable, within reasonable limits, a qualification that you did emphasize, is entirely compatible with the decisional power of the persons involved, as well as the demands of ethics to the person to which the person may have reason to pay attention precisely because of his or her power to decide. Indeed, in Hume's analysis, we see explanation of why we have reason to broaden our ethics with expanding human knowledge. Also, why we are very likely to go in that direction when exercising our liberty of choice. And also, why this broadening of the boundaries of justice can be predicted with reasonable certainty. Using human reasoning, we can, of course, go beyond seeing how early globalization was changing the demands of ethics at Hume's time. It can be asked today whether we take enough note of our responsibilities in the global world on the basis of what we do know or come to know and what we may understand we feel when we hear about one horror or another in the world. The framework of ethical reasoning that Hume did much to make us understand can accommodate greater appreciation of our global relations, indeed of our global humanity, within a broad philosophical structure, 
the extension of knowledge about the lives and the predicaments of others today and about the threats that future generations can face from environment for environmental and other reasons can broaden the boundaries of justice that we have to consider still further. If this is a part of a post-Humean exercise that we have strong reason to undertake today, which I believe we have, we have to recognize how much that exercise depends on the enlightenment that David Hume brought to the demands of well-informed and well-reflected ethics rather than any kind of denial of ethics. Indeed, there is no denial of ethics here, nor any belittling of reason. Rather, the world and our future may well depend on the human understanding that we can bring to bear on the interconnections between what we know, what we feel, what we can reasonably expect, and what we have reason to think and do. There can be few things that are as important as that. Thank you. Good evening. I'm Frances Gallagher, the chair of RAC Scotland, and I want to thank you most sincerely for a wonderful lecture and talk, and thank you for coming. My question is that um, in relation to Hume's attitude to his sort of opposition to imperial power, shall we say, or the idea of imperial power, and his ethical attention to uh, the developing knowledge of people in a globalised world, particularly in terms of compatibility. How would you see his attitude? Does he support the development of global religions or does he support the development of a world of totally humanists? Thank you. Uh, First of all, very nice to see you again. (laughs) Thank you for that question. Um, You know, religion isn't my forte. (laughs) Uh, And I don't really know what the answer is, because as you know, Hume was thought to be rather unreligious. And indeed, a lot of the attack from Oxford came to him for that reason. And it even engulfed his friend, Adam Smith, as having so despicable a friend. So I just don't know how his thinking would have gone. On the other hand, he gives good, good arguments as to why the kind of communicability of religion relates to our understanding and how it relates to the facts we know. He keeps on insisting you would not be able to explain, say, Christianity on the basis of reasoning only on facts. There is something else that you have to assume. And he doesn't make clear whether he was ready to assume that himself, but it's reasonable to think that I think not all of it. Now, so I don't quite know. I mean, I think you have to distinguish between Hume, the analyst, in which he was, as it were, a professor of religion, giving a lecture on the subject, as a Hume, the, a, a global religionist, which he wasn't and didn't become. So I think that's the way I would 
It's, uh, I would like to hear your answer to that question, really. <laughs> Much more, but I don't feel that I will come and see you so that we get a chance to talk about it another time. Thank you, and thank you for the talk. Uh, Juan Piñeros, University of Toronto. Um, my question, um, throughout the treatise, Hume distinguishes between what he calls the vulgar, uh, who seem to be people engaged in the world, uh, versus the philosophers who reflect, and he seems to think that um, you're kind of predisposed to be one of the other, and if you're one of the vulgar, there's nothing wrong with you. Um, but you won't be um, really interested in philosophical questions or questions of knowledge. Uh, they seem to just go about their daily lives and so on. Uh, however, there seem to be quite a bit of, uh, like, uh, in order to follow with the Humean um, um, a, a human ethics in a globalized world, there was need uh, for people to engage with knowledge, knowledge about uh, other people. Uh, you, in the end, you said um, that this ethics was uh, a reflective ethics. Uh, so my question is really just, uh, do you think that in Hume's, um, w uh, w given this uh, dichotomy between the vulgar and the philosophers, whether the vulgar can really uh, be responsive to uh, these reasons and to this knowledge and really engage in the sort of uh, um, uh, perhaps intellectual um, um, Okay, sorry. So, really, just uh, can the vulgar partake in this human uh, ethics uh, um, in a globalized world? You know, I think one thing to recognize is that Hume wrote an enormous amount, and often as essays and you know, as time proceeds, we tend to teach each, take each of them, even pamphlets, as if they're treatises. Uh, I don't quite know how that particular contrast which you were drawing to be interpreted. I'm not, as I said at the very beginning, I'm not a Hume scholar, and I'm not going to spend the rest of my life doing it. Uh, I, I, like always, I mean, Hume has moved me uh, in, I mean, already mentioned two or three occasions in my own life in a big way, and these are important for me, and I can see what he's saying. How it is completely consistent with everything else he may have said, sometimes perhaps in an after-dinner speech, I just don't know. And um, I gave one example, which is a serious example, I think, that it seems to me that the one black spot that I uh, identified compared with Smith about lack of, I think, adequate understanding of how much the African people had suffered from the kind of dehumanized uh, humiliation that had gone with slavery and so on, and how the slaves, if you looked at their conduct, you would not be able to tell what the African person's potential is. That's, he makes somewhat uh, negative remarks there, which seem to be totally at odds with what else he is saying in his writings. 
in a way that you don't see in Adam Smith at all. I mean, dealing with the same problem, for example, Adam Smith recognizes how the life... By the way, Hume was full of sympathy for slaves. Quite a lot of his writings can't understand how in antiquity slaves could have been treated with such a dehumanized way. But he does not carry that analysis well in a way that I think Smith did. Smith, for example, as I quoted in my Penguin introduction to the theory of moral sentiment, quoted in that book itself. And, of course, Smith, unlike Hume, was given to enormous exaggeration, just radical exaggeration. And there he says, there isn't a single African in the coast of the, of the whole of the continent whose in innate idea of ideas of magnanimity and generosity uh, isn't larger than anything that his sordid master could ever hope to understand. It's a very strong statement, putting all Africans over all the whites involved in that trade. Now, I think, and this is one of Smith's things, he, he does that again and again to, to make his point. And, um, but it also shows that what Smith generalizes, also he particularizes in this case. In Hume's case, he generalizes, which would be against a particular observation that he actually does make, but he keeps the particular observation. I, my inclination is to go by his general observation. Now, it's up to a Hume scholar, and maybe, given your interest, you may, may already be one or become one, uh, might try to let me know what you think. Until then, I would go by his general observations as the real Hume for me. But uh, I look forward to hearing from you. <laughs> Professor, Professor Sen, I'd like to thank you very much for your lecture, which has certainly broadened my mind. I'm just a simple doctor and medical researcher, and I've only read a very little bit of Hume, but like you, I have been quite inspired by the little I have read. So I hope my question will not seem naive. I think one of the challenges of our modern societies that's under-recognized is its multi-ethnic nature. Even just looking around this lecture room, I would think that perhaps people from 30 or 40 nations are just represented in this hallway. Something that Hume and, and his contemporaries would never have seen, couldn't possibly imagine. The world has come to the street corner of every major city. And the question I wanted to ask you was, did Hume ever envisage such a world? And if he did envisage it, did he think that living in, in a multi-ethnic society would lead to greater human understanding and greater human sentiment and compassion? Or did he ever envisage that such societies would produce tensions and conflicts that would lead to great inhumanity and cruelty? And did he envisage any solutions to these sort of problems that multi-ethnic societies can create? Very interesting question. Uh, I can see a doctor has to take into account many considerations before making a decision. Um, I think he didn't address the question in that form because it wasn't a phenomenon at that time, as you point out. Um, on the other hand, did he think about it? I think there's every evidence he thought about what it is like to have... Um, conversation with people, not only trade and economic relations, but also conversation. I quoted one of the passages there with, with people, how it broadens the mind and makes people think, energizes them, makes people think in a way that they wouldn't have. So I think I'd go away with that 
but I think there are three points to make here. It's a very interesting question. One, of course, is to dissociate the question, since that always messes up what we are trying, you and I are trying to discuss. Namely, does that mean that each nation's borders should be opened up for every country people to come around the corner? There's an issue about governance, the viability of governance, on which, by the way, Hume also speaks as to why there are many limits that you have to accept. He didn't talk particularly about that. So I'm not talking about governance and immigration rules. That I'm not talking about. I am, however, talking about, and that's my second point, they, that would he have regarded the fact that people from many backgrounds are present at a certain place and with their distinct ideas interacting with each other, would he have regarded that as a positive thing? I think there's every evidence he would have. He would have not taken the view that our distinctions lie only because of our national or racial origin. He discusses enormously how the divisions within any particular country may sometimes be very large indeed, as does Adam Smith. Adam Smith's discussion about the barriers of class is just a phenomenally powerful discussion, as is Hume, I think, in this respect, the two of them had. So he would have certainly regarded that to have very strong positive elements in it. The third point I want to make is that this is, and this is, I already referred to my book, Identity and Violence. I'm very critical of the British form that the British multiculturalism take, which I see mostly as a plural monoculturalism, try to produce every culture in its own box. You, will, you, have, you go to your own religious schools, you grow up completely differently from each other, and of course have a token mixture of white people in Muslim schools or Sikh schools or Hindu schools and vice versa. I think that, and, and at the government expenditure, do that. I think, like me, and here I'm being really arrogant, I tend to think that Hume would have thought in a somewhat similar way to which I was trying to, I've been trying to think, uh, influenced greatly by Hume and, and Smith and others, that that's not the way to make use of multiculturalism is not by keeping them in a plural monocultural form, like they grow, like trees, separate trees grow on their own. The exercise of growing of people is not like the growing of trees, growing your own sustenance from your own native culture and soil, but mixing with each other. So he would have liked genuine multiculturalism and not plural monoculturalism. That is quite clear to me. So thank you for a really exciting question. Thank you. My name is Jacqueline Taylor. I'm a Hume Scholar, Professor of Philosophy at University of San Francisco. Thank you, Professor Sen. That was a lovely, wide-ranging essay. Um, I just wanted, this is just an aside, but Hume's essay, Populousness of Ancient Nations, where he's very critical of slavery, is a later essay, and the evidence suggests that Hume has a much more mature and sophisticated ethical outlook at that point. That's just an aside, though. I wanted to ask a question about a comment you made about one of my favorite essays, Rise and Progress of the Arts and Sciences, the point about industry, humanity, and knowledge forming an indissoluble chain. Um, two points that I would like to ask you to comment on. One, even though these form this indissoluble chain, Hume is acutely aware that 
governments can become destabilized, war can occur, and so on. And just would like to have your thoughts about how to keep these institutions stable in the modern world. And then Hume seems there to me to be talking about three kinds of institutions, political institutions such as government that attend to the needs of people, economic institutions and the flourishing of society. And then knowledge here, Hume seems to really be talking about education. He has that remark about men of genius are really flourishing in societies where the weavers are well-educated too. And you didn't really talk much about education. I just wonder for our world what you think about uh, education as important to the flourishing of prosperity of society and to the stabilization of really just governments? I think the, I see three questions there. And I will proceed in uh, reverse order. Um, the last one is that the question of education. Yes, I didn't get much of a chance to discuss that, but it's quite clear how tremendously important it is in his, in his thinking. And the one reason why I'm not discussing that so much is that that's not where me, Hume's distinction lies, for example, for example, with, with Smith. Uh, you see, when you look at Smith, when he's talking about the class distinction, he's focusing entirely, uh, almost entirely, on how much the opportunity of education are killed by the, by the life that the manual laborers live. So that unlike others who you know, do work so that in the evening they can come and put up their feet and read something, that's not available if you come from an exhausting days of labor in a factory. Uh, that issue is, is big in Smith and is big, it's actually big in Bentham too, not generally my favorite author, but very much so in, in this context. So I, would, I didn't emphasize that, but I totally agree it's very big for Hume, yes, indeed, uh, along with others at his time. Mary Wilson thought it's very big. Um, the coming backward, the institutions, they are again very important, and some of the insights to get about institutions from his work is to see how he solves the constructive role of institutions in the work of the society, making it a good society. Um, I take this opportunity, since uh, you may or may not be aware, I did publish a book called The Idea of Justice, where I took, uh, I'm very critical of social contract theory and very contact critical of this institutional nature. And sometimes I'm attacked for saying that I'm against institutions. Throughout my life, like following the footsteps of Hume, I've tried to emphasize the importance of education, of institutions. But I did not want a theory which ends with ideal institutions in the world. I wanted a theory that improved the lives of people in the way that Hume did. So I think I'm on a very similar line to him taking institutions very seriously, but not to have an institutional theory of justice. And I take this opportunity of mentioning that among the writers of that time, no one is perhaps as forceful as Hume is in criticizing the social contract approach, which he does again and again, as to why it's an implausible way of thinking. Who do you think about? And that's where the last, the doctor's question also come in, that people are migrating so much. What, what's this... What's the thought experiment that's going on in this supposed past primordial state of equality of the original position, as Euralian may put it that way? So I think institutional, but not uh, institution, respecting, honoring, 
but not an institutional theory of justice is the way I would like to see Hume. And it's not a surprise, of course, since my ideas are influenced by Hume, along with that of Smith and so on, indeed, I have explicitly, explicitly acknowledged that that's the way uh, I would try to interpret your second question's answer, answer to your second question. On the first, I absolutely agree that he was, I would go further and say, not only in his last writing, throughout his life he was opposed to slavery. But despite that, I think that particular passage I'm referring to, which you, I'm sure you have spent time on, indicates a kind of failure, it seems to me, for Hume to apply his principles sufficiently clearly. And what you're pointing out, that at a later stage, he was much more consistent on that subject than he was earlier. And, and I agree with you, and I think I should emphasize it more, and I'm delighted to think that that is indeed the case, and I can quote your authority in saying that that is the case. So thank you. At one point, you said that reasoning cannot be independent of what we know and feel. And my question is, do you see any difference in the process of reasoning that takes place in the social sciences and humanities on the one hand and in the natural sciences on the other, particularly with regard to the feeling sentiment? And they're clear different because the subject matter is different. And here we do get a lot of help from, of, of, from uh, Hume, namely that the nature of reasoning varies a lot. For example, experimental reasoning, which he, almost, he says is like an instinct, really, in fact is an instinct, and yet it is reasoning of a different kind, like the case of people not putting their hand in the fire. Both you're learning from experience as well as it's part of your instincts. Now, for the social sciences, it's quite important, of course, to see, and this is no one is perhaps as good on that as, as Smith, about how one's experience make many actions instinctive in the, in the human sense, too. And Smith says that there are a lot of times we don't even know why we are doing these things, but we, we still follow these rules. That doesn't mean that there is no reasoning there, and some stage when we find when there's an occasion, we might revise that, and we do revise that. Now, that's a big engagement in social sciences, a uniformity that exists, and yet that is, remains always susceptible to reason. In a way, the movement of electrons and protons are not, at least I hope not. And, and that is certainly one difference. There are many other differences. So I think, in general, the idea that the subject matter should govern the ideal style of reasoning for that subject, for that set question, would be a very human thought. That doesn't mean nothing that can be learned from the natural sciences, from the, for the social sciences. Uh, let me give you a very small example uh, of myself. I've always been very interested in maths. In fact, in Calcutta, my first degree, as Barun Day, who was a classmate of mine, he was the member. He didn't go to them, but I was doing math when he was doing history. And this is Bowen Day. He's studying in the Hume Conference, one of our most distinguished historians. So I spent a lot of time doing math. But, of course, what I learned greatly, of course, calculus, differential equations, later calculus of variation. So things like Pontryagin and so on was absolutely lovely for me. But what use did I get out of that? Almost nothing. 
because by the time I was working on it, the problems I was concerned with were behavior, choice, social choice theory. In fact, more than half my life was devoted to the mathematics of social choice theory. But these are not the, the mathematics of calculus and Newtonian mathematics. And one of my problems is that I believe a lot of mathematics gets misled into assuming the kind of mathematics that you're going to apply is like that of what, what used to be called um, um, applied math based on theory. Now, applied math, in my days in undergraduate in, in, in Cambridge, I moved from presidency to Cambridge at some stage, applied math was like theoretical physics, almost not no difference in it. That isn't the kind of applied math that you're going to apply to economics because the variables would be discrete, the space would be discrete, the objects will be lumpy, and there will be the kind of thing that you will use. They became, if you want to be very um, uh, high about that, by the kind of turn of uh, 1900 or so, the, the mathematics itself was moving in that direction. And, uh, and um, uh, um, along with uh, you know, Hilbert and later um, um, uh, von Neumann, John F. Nash, the, the space had already changed. Now, those maths, of course, directly communicate with what I do. And I think initial misleading was to try to copy too much the lessons in mathematics or physics. So there is something to be learned and something not to be learned. It's a really exciting subject, and I'm, I wish you and I have more chance to chat about it. Perhaps I can take you out to dinner someday and we can talk about that. Uh, I'm a geographer. Uh, an urban geographer, and that may be partly uh, what stimulates the question I want to ask you. Um, one, yeah, um, one thing that makes me curious and still rather uncomfortable with the Scottish Enlightenment philosophers, and I'm not an Enlightenment scholar, is that they lived in a society in which a man could be hanged for stealing a sheep to feed his starving children. Now, I'm not aware of them ever protesting very much about that, despite their ethical and moral concerns. Maybe, maybe they did protest, but, and I'm just not aware of it. But I, I just can't help wondering, you know, um, if they didn't protest, why not? Um, they, they, Hume must have seen men executed in the grass market not far from here, from time to time. It was an intermittent occurrence in the city, and uh, and uh, the you know to our thinking, the loss of life was totally disproportionate to the crimes that they'd committed. So, um, was it just that he was used to seeing it? I can't believe that. I'm, I'm sure he must have. Uh, did they not place a very high, a sufficiently high value on human life? Now, um, maybe it's a. This is a question to address to a historian, but, um, and there are many other Enlightenment scholars here, so I just wonder if... I, I'd like to have some enlightenment on that. Well, you won't get enlightenment, but you will get speculation from me. Uh, I think let me first take a very general issue that puzzles you and it puzzles me, that the great minds we're often silent on issues on which we would like them to speak. My favorite example was Francis Bacon, a very distinguished member of my college, namely Trinity, 
who uh, is difficult. I've, I've learned so much from him what he says about reasoning and doubts and so on. Enormously phasing the role of doubt. But this is a time when witch hunting was going on. What did Francis Bacon say about that? Well, very difficult to find. Why not? Did he not know about it? He clearly did know about it. I think that someone, I think it's Hugh Trover, I can't think now, who speculates that the answer must be that he really thought it wasn't his business. But that's not a very satisfactory answer either, though it might have been the correct answer, historically. I don't know why they didn't. So there is a puzzle here. Now, in case of Smith, he does discuss a lot about, to quote him, whether the punishment fits the crime. That's a big subject of his thing. And I actually take off, not from Hugh in this case, but from Smith, in a paper, in a lecture that I gave, uh, it was called Herbert Hart Lecture in the Faculty of Law in Oxford last year. And in September, it's coming out in the Oxford Studies in Legal Philosophy uh, called, uh, I think it's called um, Right uh, um, uh, Reasoning and Language. And where I discussed that and the issue, um, that issue was very much addressed and maybe Jacqueline Taylor here or somebody else would know whether Hume did discuss these issues. But certainly at a general level, he does ask the question whether the punishment fits the crime. Perhaps not intensely as Smith does, I don't know. But it's there, I, I think, probably there. But the other thing, if you're, in case you're thinking that maybe if Hume had said something, that may have been a good way of proceeding further. I don't think we're going to get Hume for everything that we do. Just as he said, reasoning has limits, but reasoning based on Hume's reasoning had even further limits, obviously. And I don't think, and I don't, I don't, I've never, just in the case of reason, I think the system theory might say, Hume's mistake in assuming that if the reasoning is any good, then you should, there's no incompleteness left in the world. That's a mistake. And here it's possible that there were incompleteness in the thinking of Hume. That doesn't embarrass, in my understanding, Hume's ideas. We get from it what we do get, which is an enormous amount. And we don't worry about particularly difficult cases that he may not have addressed adequately. And it may not be that difficult either. We have to determine whether it's difficult or not. So I'm really appreciative that you raised that question, but I would not see as a limitation of human thinking, and I don't think you would either. But is there something to discuss? And there's a, really, you see, if I was younger, the way I learned things throughout my life is to make a PhD student work with me on a subject that interests me. <laughs> That's the quickest way of learning. The other day, in an idle moment crossing the Atlantic, I counted that more than 150 people had, for whom I have been the sole or principal supervisor. And a lot of things I know really came from the work, which we often did together, but they did bulk of the work. And uh, I, I, um, I guess the word is tried to motivate them. I encouraged them, as it were, jubilated them, and so on. So... If I had time, I'd like to, would have liked to have started somebody doing PhD on, on how 
people could be silent on matters, which are in some ways within the domain of their own analysis when they see it. And there are a lot of them. I think the question goes back to Aristotle, too, and about his attitude to gender, his attitude to slavery. Why didn't what he was discussing apply to them? Now, that's the kind of question that one could well ask. One could similarly ask about questions at the time, uh, what about gender inequality in the time of inequality being discussed by Bentham? Why is it that it awaits John Stuart Mill and the subjection of women to bring it with that mode of discussion? I think there's a really exciting question there. But uh, if you have a PhD soon, maybe you might start someone solving that problem. Thank you very much for your attendance and your close attention and your interesting questions. But I think we all owe a huge debt of gratitude to Professor Sen for such a fantastic lecture. I'm sure we're all going to be watching it again on the video to pick up all the points that we perhaps couldn't take up tonight. But thank you once again. This production is copyright, the University of Edinburgh.